Hello and welcome again to the Power Watts podcast. And I am your host, Mark, uh, coach at uh, Power Watts West Island and also head coach uh, across a lot of the centers across Canada for the coach training. And with me today, again, is the founder and creator of Power Watts, Paulo Saldana. How are you doing today, Paulo? Great. Good to be here, Mark. Ah, good. I'm glad you're, you're happy to be here. I'm happy to be here. And uh, today we're going to do something a little different. We actually reached out to some of our PowerWatts clientele and asked them what they would like to ask you, Paulo. So I have a list of questions here and I'll hit you with these questions and then hopefully you'll be able to answer them. What do you think of that? Oh no, I better prepare my notes. <laughs> you got to pretend like you know what you're talking about, Paulo. That's when uh, things get that, difficult. That's normal for me anyway. So. <laughs> Okay, so let's uh, let's start right away with the first question. So the first question comes from Linda, and here's what she says. I just started PowerWatts a few weeks ago. I'm having a lot of fun so far. I really like how every workout is quite different, and I don't know what to expect going in. I do have a question, though. I'm pretty new to training with watts, and on my performance report, I could see average watts and normalized power. What is the difference, and which one is more important? So just uh, to add a bit of context to this, uh, in our PowerWatch training classes, once the class is complete, all the information from that workout is uploaded to our servers, and then we crunch the numbers for everybody and present a report to them that shows how their watts vary during the workouts, and we present also standard metrics like average watts and normalized power. So, Paulo, how would you answer Linda's question? Well, first of all, Linda, welcome to PowerWatts. I'm glad you're uh, you're enjoying it and having a lot of fun. I'm sure you're going to continue to enjoy the variety of workouts that you're going to uh, experience in classes. Uh, and it's a good question. You know, a lot of people don't really understand what the difference might be between just uh, measuring the average wattage that you put out in a workout versus the normalized power. And essentially what it is, is it's a, I mean, normalized power is like an algorithm that calculates uh, the the weight of the wattage and how much time you spend below and above your threshold in a way that better represents the true physiological work that your body is doing. So uh, take as an example, um, let's say you you do a, a three-hour ride outside that's a very hilly race or course that you're doing with a lot of accelerations where the power output is very erratic. Um, and let's say at the end of that three-hour ride, your average watts are 180. Um, the normalized power may actually be 225 because it actually weighs the time you spend below and above in a different way so that it can give a better representation of how hard that felt for you and how much stress that presented to your body. As opposed to holding 180 watts steady state where your perceived exertion might be, let's say, 5 on 10, if I was to say to you, hold exactly 180 watts in a steady state effort, you might say to me, well, that was a five on 10. But if I said to you, hold 180 watts average, but I want you to do it in a way that goes zero to 50, 110, 230, and you kept doing that, well, that would be a lot more fatiguing and your perceived exertion might actually be a nine on 10 to do exactly the same average watts, but the normalized power takes into account that difference of the stochastic nature, stochastic meaning, meaning uh, the up and down nature of, of, of cycling. 
So the in the example that you gave, say you go from zero to two fifty to one ten. In the end, your average watts might be one eighty, but your normalized power might really be two twenty. So the two twenty is a better representation of the total metabolic effort you put out. You know, better than what the one eighty indicates. Is is that more or less correct? Exactly. And you know, so that's basically the difference. The question about which one is more important is really, um, they're both important. And I think that, that people tend to look at normalized power when they're trying to look at giving an athlete uh, a, a workout that's stressful for them, uh, or looking at the stress of a race, if you happen to go to a Grand Fondo, or you're looking at a bike racer that did a, a very long stage with a lot of erratic attacks in it. If you want to get an indication of, of how much effort their body put out it's better to look at normalized power it gives a more accurate representation okay so i think that's uh, a good answer to linda's question hopefully she's happy with that answer if not i'm sure she'll let us know and we can answer even in more depth if she's interested on the next show so let's move on to the next question so this one is a little long paulo i'll read the whole thing it's coming from dave and here's what he has to say hello I've been training with power watts for two and a half years and I have improved my 20 minute power from 212 watts in my first 20 minute time trial to 260 watts just a few weeks ago. Well, well done, Dave. That's a really nice improvement. So then he continues. Thanks so much for the help. This season, I signed up for a 70.3 triathlon in June. It is my first triathlon. I know I have no chance of winning or anything like that. But I want to do the best I can, don't we all? I'm decent in the water. I won't die of drowning, he even wrote. So I'm not worried there. Cycling is by far my greatest strength and my running is only okay. How should I pace myself? Should I go harder on the bike knowing it is a strength and then see what happens on the run? Or should I be more conservative on the bike saving the legs for the run? And more specifically asks, what percentage of 20-minute power should I aim for as an average wattage? And if I ever do a full Ironman, what kind of power target should I have? Thanks so much. So that's a pretty loaded question there, Paul. So maybe we'll tackle these one by one. Well, Dave, that's a, that's a four-part question. I don't really answer those. so <laughs> <laughs> You can only handle one question at a time, right? One at a time. My AD prevents me from doing much more than that, but I'll, I'll give it a shot here. So. Um, Seriously, I think that, you know, first of all, congrats on your improvement. That's uh, that's phenomenal to go from 212 to 246. So uh, glad to hear that you're on board with PowerWatts and, and getting results. And, uh, you know, I think with regards to your, your, your triathlon, first of all, I think if you're going to do your first triathlon, everybody's uh, objective in the beginning should be to just finish, you know? Uh, and I... I it, to have an objective of going a particular time or a particular pace might not necessarily be realistic in your first race, but I can still give you some guidelines. And I will say that for you, uh, you know, you have to remember that pacing in these solo events like triathlons or even time trials where you're entirely based on endurance and, and your pacing is very, very steady and straightforward, as opposed to something like road racing where there's attacks and a lot of movement up and down in the power spectrum. I think it's, it's something that you can, 
use a power meter to try and help you or use the perception of the power that you're doing in your power watch glass to try and understand what feels from a perceived exertion perspective like something that is doable for a particular length of time. And that's something that you're going to see more of when you go outside. For example, if you're training indoors and you're now holding 246 watts and you have a power meter and you go outside, what you need to try and do is start breaking your training into segments of, let's say, 10, 15, and then up to 20 and 30 minutes where you're doing between 70 to 80% of that 20-minute power because that's going to be right around the level that you're going to be doing in your in your half Ironman bike uh, event. So typically what I recommend for, for athletes in, 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 a, in a half Ironman race is for them to kind of give themselves a window. And that window is generally between 70, 75% of their 20-minute power and up to 85% of their 20-minute power, especially if it's a rel- relatively flat course. If it's a hillier course, you can open that How you give permission for that power to go a little bit further down, even as low as 60% and 50% sometimes. But then if you're going uphill, you have to give permission for the power to go even up to 90% on occasion. So what that does is it allows you to ride with a window that you can adjust to the terrain on based on what you're encountering. And that's going to give you a, a good sort of um, pacing strategy for your first event. But the most important thing is for you to be able to uh, do this in training in broken pieces. So you might get up to the point where you're actually doing two to three hours total of work in the 70 to 85% power range, uh, you know, within a a four hour ride. So you might do, you might start off with, uh, you know, uh, 10 sets of eight or 10 minutes and you might trim the next week down to six sets of 10 to 15 minutes. And you might trim the week down after that to four or five sets of 15 to 20 minutes to the point where you're actually getting to 30 to 45 minutes of effort at that intensity. And what that's going to do is going to stimulate your body to try and uh, be able to hold that sustainable power throughout the event. And the event of the race is probably going to take you somewhere between uh, let's see, maybe two and a half to three and a half hours or so, depending on, on, on the type of terrain that that course has. So that's what I suggest for that part of it. Uh, second part of the question, I guess, uh, I mean, uh, for the other thing too, I think you should, you should make sure of is that you, you understand that c- consumption of food or, or, or calories and hydration is super important. And you're going to have to practice in your training uh, to be able to uh, consume uh, about 250 to 300 kilocalories per hour on the bike to try and make sure that you don't deplete your glycogen stores when you're on the bike. So that's super important as well. And the other last thing I'm going to say about that is that you also want to try and make sure that when we know that uh, in, in a half Ironman and Ironman races that there's what's called a decay of, of, uh, of cadence. And that means that you get a little bit neurologically fatigued and your, your, your leg speed and your cadence goes down. So I would suggest that knowing that that's going to happen, you start at a slightly higher cadence than you're, than you're comfortable at so that when your cadence does decay, that you're decaying from a higher level to a medium level as opposed to from a medium level to a low level. And what that's going to do is it's actually going to save your legs a little bit for the run which goes into the second part or the third part, I think, of the question that you had, which is how, do I, how hard do I go on the bike 
in order to save myself for the run. Well, those percentage guidelines I give you are important, but you want to try and also combine that with a gear that spins your legs a little bit more so that you can have decent turnover when you get to the run and that your muscles are not so depleted and fatigued from those lower geared, higher strength efforts so that you can actually run to the your limited capacity that you mentioned you have, you can actually maximize what you can get out of it. So that's kind of uh, what I can give you for the, the four-part question. Any more that I missed, Mark? Uh, well, he also asks, if I ever do a full Ironman, what kind of power target would I have? Okay, so the, on a full Ironman, it, it becomes a little bit of a different animal. Um, I've always said to people that the Ironman is an exercise in the conservation of energy and the ability to, to digest and absorb throughout that process. So I would suggest that if it's going to be your first Ironman, that you err on the side of conservatism and that you actually give yourself a window of anywhere from 65 to about 80% of your CP20, which means that you're probably going to hold somewhere around 73 to 76% of your 20-minute power, which would be a very good uh, effort. Now, remember, you have to do the training to get to that point. So if you're able to do the training, you should be able to hold somewhere in that window, of course, depending on the terrain of that course. So, And uh, the other thing that you might want to keep in mind is that, you know, as we talked about normalized power before, you want to make sure that your average power and your normalized power are relatively close to each other. You don't want a low average power and a higher normalized power because it means that you have been too erratic in your efforts and you want that variability to be as little as possible so that you don't burn matches, quote unquote. So make sure that your pacing is very, very close in terms of average power and normalized power. The last thing you're going to have to keep in mind too in, 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 an, in an Ironman event is you have to give yourself permission to um, adjust your pacing based upon the environment and principally the environment I mean the temperature and humidity uh, as you as you may have heard you know when it's very hot it's much harder to do physical work and you dehydrate a little bit more so you want to make sure that you have to adjust your power down and say it's going to be a 95 degree day and you know that don't stick to your objectives of you know, 75%, let's say, as an example, you might want to tone it down two, three, four, even 5%, depending on the level of heat and humidity. Hmm. So, uh, nice answer. I mean, a four-part question became a 10-part answer, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a good way of going about it. And I'm actually going to ask an additional question that, that might come to Dave's mind after he hears your response. So uh, let's say he's not sure whether he should be closer to the, say, the 70% target or the 80% target uh, for his half Ironman because he doesn't know if his legs can handle the run afterwards. Would you suggest that he do uh, bike run workouts where, say, one workout maybe he'd ride at 70% for a while and then run and another workout he'd ride at 80% for a while and then run to see the difference? Like, what, what do you think uh, would be a good protocol for him to try? Well, I mean, uh, I, I definitely think that uh, trying to play with what they call bricks in triathlon, which is a bike-to-run workout, would help him answer that question. It's interesting because some people run really well off the bike, and they're not necessarily great runners. And other per people run really poorly off the bike, and they are great runners because it does interfere with the stride, you know? So I would say that 
my, you know, he's going to learn a lot of these things in the training that he does leading up to the, uh, the event, but that he should start a process where he can maybe build a program to explore that. For example, you know, start do a ride where most of your intensity is around the 70 or 75% range and see how that impacts your run right off the bike for 10 kilometers and then build the spectrum up to maybe 80% and see how that impacts you. And you'll know kind of where your breaking point is a little bit, you know, especially if you extend the run a little bit as you get used to it. Um, so I would say that it sounds like I'm giving you that he should do trial and error, but he should do trial and error because everybody's so different that you'd not, you don't really know until you get out there and try it. But my definite, my recommendation is definitely to uh, be conservative, start at the lower end of the spectrum and see how that feels for the run and, you know, tweak that up from time to time when you do the breaks so that you can find out where your break point is. Oh, well, that sounds like uh, you gave him a great starting place where he can start to experiment and figure out what works best for him. So, uh, Dave, I hope you're satisfied with that answer and let us know how it goes after you do a couple bike run workouts. Uh, feel free to reach out and tell us how it went. Great. So let's uh, let's move on to the next question. Uh, so this one's coming from John, and uh, he writes, For the last few PowerWatt seasons, I've always done really well in workouts that involve longer intervals at steady power, but anytime the workout has power outputs of like 125 or 130% or more repeatedly, I tend to fail on a lot of reps. Sometimes when the high powers on are on uphills, I'm all right, but when they're on the flats, forget about it. Is there anything I could do on the bike or off the bike, like running or weightlifting or something to help me improve on the shorter, more intense intervals? Any advice is much appreciated. So what do you think, Paulo? Hmm, John, good question. Um, don't know if I have a black and white answer for you, but uh, I'll do my best. I think the first thing is you talked about strength training. And, you know, there obviously is research to suggest that uh, strength training can help develop some power and strength characteristics that can partially convert to cycling performance. I happen to think that it's a little bit more on the sprinting capacity than it is on the endurance capacity. At yeah, least I couldn't agree more on that one. Uh, the weights have really helped my sprinting capacity, but the the longer power outputs are, seem to be a bit of a different beast. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, 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 so I would be careful. It depends on what you're trying to accomplish when you look at strength training, especially if you have limited time to train. I think uh, if you have very specific weaknesses that you want to address in the weight room, that's okay to do that. But that if you have limited time that you want to make sure that you spend uh, as much of that time as possible trying to, to work on these, these, this weak part of your cycling profile or, or physiology. I mean, you know, I want to say that we are all sort of better suited to one type of effort than another in terms of what our genetics and our physiology allows us to, to do to a large extent. I mean, it's dictated by that to an extent, you know, uh, you might have uh, a good, uh, a, a really good aerobic capacity, but, a, but a, a poor anaerobic capacity, which seems that like that's kind of what, what you have. And you also seem to have a poor anaerobic capacity with repeatability. So you may have maybe one or two good efforts in you, but as soon as you start to add five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten efforts, or you strip away recovery from those harder efforts, you seem to become compromised and you're just not able to repeat as often as possible. And what I could tell you about that is 
people shy away from things that they're not so good at. And what's great about power watts is that we give you a lot of everything. And some of those things you're not going to be that good at. And it's important or incumbent upon you to understand that the things that you're not so good at are the things, the very things that you might want to be working on. And so what I would suggest to you is that maybe you, you know, you take that knowledge and try and, and, and in either work with a coach to try and improve that anaerobic pop and anaerobic capacity by many, there's many different strategies to do that. One of them is to help you a little bit in the weight room, but more importantly, to do very specific drills on the bike that can help to address those things. It's very simple uh, things like working on your 20 to 30 second capacity. And by capacity, I mean, you might want to say to yourself, okay, we're going to do six efforts of 30 seconds with eight to 10 minutes in between, but those 30 seconds are going to be as hard as you can go. That's going to work your anaerobic capacity. Another way to do it, to try and look at maybe improving your repeatability is you tweak down the intensity. So instead of doing those 30 seconds at all out, you try and do those 30 seconds at a little bit more of a controlled effort, but still very hard, but you strip away the recovery. You might only give yourself one or two minutes of recovery and repeat them eight, 10, 12 times. Those are the kinds of efforts that are going to give you a better capacity to add matches to that matchbook that you want to be able to burn in these in these power watts classes and then eventually out outside to the real world. Uh, so th those are kind of some of the things that I would say that you need to do. Um, I will say one more thing, and that's when you know when you know with the with the current uh, software that we're using, the PowerWatt system, it sometimes uh, is difficult because clients who have a very good aerobic capacity and a higher threshold, and we prescribe their exercise intensity based on their twenty minute best effort. In other words, they're an aerobic component, but we pres prescribe thirty second efforts based on an aerobic component then the people with the higher thresholds are going to be to a degree penalized, especially if they don't have good anaerobic capacity. I'm getting a little bit technical here, but what I'm trying to say is that using an aerobic component to prescribe an anaerobic condition doesn't always work. So sometimes it might be better for you to look at your best 30 seconds and to say, okay, instead of doing 150% of my best 20 minutes, I'm going to do 75% of my best 30 seconds. And I'm going to try and build on that so that you can be more closely bound to your anaerobic abilities when it comes to prescribing training intensity. So I hope that makes sense to John. Did it make sense to you, Mark? Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, I, I think for, for John, uh, looking up his data, actually, he's uh, almost at a 300-watt threshold. So he would probably really benefit from looking more closely at his 30-second power and working specifically off of that to progressively increase it because he might just be in that situation where he's that, uh, he's that diesel engine. He can go at a high power all day, but he needs a, a bit of a different type of focus and a different way to approach his anaerobic training instead of just the normal percentages of threshold power. Yeah, I mean, it's like... Uh... I mean, I don't know a good analogy, but maybe, you know, if you think about uh, it's like wearing, you know, night vision glasses to see better in the day. It just doesn't work as well as it should. You know? like, <laughs> yes. it just, so try try looking at your anaerobic profile and you'll get a better uh, a better way to control and prescribe power for these shorter efforts. And we're, you know, we're looking at doing that in a much better way over the next year or so in the PowerWatts classes. So you'll see that the prescriptive modeling will be 
uh, much more robust and much more suited to the specificity of what your power curve looks like. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So I hope that answers your question, John. And uh, good luck in your training of your anaerobic capacity. It's a very useful skill to develop. So even if you keep failing along the way, it's the effort that will allow you to keep getting better and better. So keep putting in that effort. Yeah, go for it, John. All right, so let's take a look at the next question. Okay, so the next question of a bit of a different nature. So this one's coming from Sarah, and she writes, When I found out that uh, Michael Woods was on the Pro Tour and that he's a Power Watts athlete, I became really excited at watching the Pro Tour races that he is in, especially that third-place finish in the uphill stage of the Tour Down Under. That was so exciting. What kind of power output was he doing during that stage and on that last climb? And how much power do you think he'll have to hold to, if he want to keep up to a rider like Contador or Chris Froome on a long climb on a stage of the Tour de France or the uh, Giro d'Italia? Ah, the wattage question. <laughs> okay, Sarah, well, um, oh, it's great that you, uh, that you like watching Michael Woods power up those hills and, and, and power he does. Um, he's an exceptional athlete with a, a fairly big engine and one that he's refined to even grow to better heights and hopefully will take him to uh, some very, very cool places, uh, including the Olympics and, and maybe a grand tour this year. Um, you know, I, I'm going to sort of reference your question by giving you the perspective or the context of duration. So a lot of times when people watch these races on TV, they don't always get the perspective of how long or how short the climbs are. And, and, and what I mean by duration in the context is that the shorter the climb, the higher the power. The longer the climb, the lower the power. So when you looked at that race, and I think it was the Tour Down Under, where I think there was a couple of stages there, he was in top five, and one in particular where he, where he was third. In that particular stage, that last climb, believe it or not, was only seven minutes and 35 seconds long. Oh, wow. It and seemed so, like longer than that. Yes, people thought that that's what it was. But, you know, when you go over and you review the profile afterwards, you go, wow, that's that's not as long as I thought it was. Because, I mean, in, in TV, you have the adrenaline, you have the, the marketing angle of it, and you have them attacking each other. So it seems to last a little bit longer. And, and in the Tour Down Under, the, the climbs were actually uh, right in Michael's wheelhouse. He's come from a running background, or he's been a sub-four-minute miler and a, and a very, very high-level runner. And uh, typically, his his wheelhouse of effort is between three and six minutes. So, you know, you start to get into those five to ten minute climbs. That's right in his level of comfort in terms of being able to put out good power. And a guy like Michael, I remember very clearly, I, I, I sort of uh, data mined that, that last climb and remember that these guys are not climbing at steady state power. They're climbing at a very erratic power because there's constantly attacks and surges and sitting and standing and attacking and looking at the other guys and dropping back. And so there's a lot of that going on. So I know that for a fact that Michael held about 445 watts for that last climb. Wow. Uh, but I know that, uh, you know, he was hovering on a steady state level between 400 and 450, but he was surging to between 550 and 750. And those are the kinds of efforts that it takes at 63 kilos. Remember, 63 kilos is not very heavy. Yeah, yeah, it's to, a pretty to, light guy. To make the selection, you know, of the of the 150 riders to the top five or top ten. Um, and I would say that the longer the ride goes on, 
the the lower the power goes. But there is some sort of human limit that I've seen in terms of the data that I've looked at over my years of, of, of collecting information on athletes and working with different athletes at different levels. And this relates a little bit more to the Froome and Contador question. And, you know, the top riders are all within a fairly tight limit of between about 6.2 to about 6.7, 6.8 watts per kg for about a 25 to 35 minute effort. When you start to get above 6.6, things start to become a little bit suspicious because okay. it really is the upper end of what I have measured in clean athletes. And it's the upper end of the VO2 max on the bike. As an example, a guy like Michael has a VO2 max of about 90 on the bike. It kind of hovered between 88 and 92, but it's about 90. And when you think about the, 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 the number of people that have a VO2 max of 90 on the bike, you could probably count them with both fingers on both hands and that, and fingers on both hands. And that's it. Yeah, 90 is massive on a bike. That's that's un unbelievable. That's amazing. Massive anywhere, but on a bike, it's particularly impressive uh, because, you know, when you look at uh, runners and cross-country skiers, you know, you get in the 80s, and even when you look at some of the Grand Tour champions, you know, that have raced in the past are all usually in, about in the 80s. And, you know, the reason why Michael has ascended to these levels fairly quickly is because he had that engine – and then we stimulated that engine in a very short time frame, three and a half years, with a lot of intensity-based training. And he adapted very well to that. He uh, absorbed it. He responded to it. And now he's at a level where he can consistently put out those kinds of efforts uh, on a regular basis. So the, the, to answer your question, though, about um, you know, average power and, 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 and what kind of efforts he puts out in this whole race – so let's just say the race might be four, four and a half hours long. Uh, it's a good opportunity to highlight the difference between normalized power and average power, which was part of our discussion earlier. Um, I think it was uh, Dave who asked that, asked that question, or maybe it was, uh, it was maybe not Dave. It was Dave, actually it was Linda that Linda. asked that question. Yeah. It was Linda. Um, so, you know, the normalized power for Michael Woods in that, that, that race was about 310 watts for four hours, 309 watts for four hours. <laughs> wow. But his average power was about 208 watts. Wow, that's a big differential. Were there other little climbs along, uh, along the way that he had to punch up to stay with the group? Yes, and okay. that's why there's such a big difference between his normalized and his, um, his average. In a flatter stage, you'd see less of that, but you still see a lot more variation than, let's say, in a triathlon or something where you're going steady state. Because even moving around in a peloton, it takes a lot of effort. You know, you have to fight the wind, you have to surge and pass people. And, you know, they say in a peloton, if you're not moving forward, you're moving backward. You're never really staying in one spot because if you try to stay in one spot, you're moving back because you're always getting people trying to pass you in the peloton. Mm. So strategically, it's super important to uh, to do that. And for a guy like Michael Woods, he's he's been learning the ropes, but uh, I think he's improving every year, and I think we'll see some good things from him uh, this year. Wow! So that's uh, it's quite amazing to hear the the level of power output and the difference between the average watts and the and the normalized power for a stage like that. So uh, do you have time for one more question, Paulo? Yeah, a few more. Yep. Yeah. All right, so let's uh, let's take on the next one. So this next one is coming from Tony, and he says, "My favorite part of the Power Watts program is when we do workouts that have sprints based on my five-second best power. Even though my 20-minute power is not the best, 
I feel that sprinting is my strength. So I feel really good after I do a solid sprint. And I'm really happy to have those as part of the Power Watts program. I was wondering what kind of power a sprinter does at the end of a race to win the race or win the stage. I was so excited when I cracked 1,000 watts, and he mentioned he did 1,024 last month for the first time in a while. Pro riders must be able to do so much more. Or is it the 10-second power or 15-second power that's more important than the 5-second power? Because it seems that sprinters are sprinting more than 5 seconds at the end of a race. Also, how much power is the sprinter holding while in the lead-up to the sprint? It must be really high since they're going so fast, right? Well, Tony, not always. Um, <laughs> if you look at um, the the power file of a sprinter in a pro tour race that's being let out, whether it's his team or whether it's a group of other riders that are trying to vie for the finish, you will see an extremely erratic line going from zero to a thousand very regularly. very regularly and that's because the lead out train has to cope with other riders trying to sneak in turns speeding up slowing down uh trying to make sure they cover attacks so you see a massively erratic power file especially in the riders who are trying to cherry pick the race who don't have a lead out train if you have a lead out train of four or five or six riders that are setting a very, very high tempo and leading you, let's say, as the sprinter to the finish line, there's less of an erratic behavior, but you're still going to get a lot of jumping around from 250 watts up to 550 watts and back down again. So you have to be able to survive that. So, you know, the power outputs to answer one of your questions uh, that they're, the, the sprinter is is uh, going under uh, or is subjected to for these lead outs is variable, but it's not sustainably high because sustainably high would ruin the sprinter's legs. Sprinters have a really good neuromuscular capacity and they're able to surge and recover very quickly from that surge. And if you don't make them do these long, hard surges, if you do three, four seconds, two seconds at a time, then they'll recover from that and they can still have a punchy finish. And I will say, though, that your power output on the power watt system that we have, cracking 1,000 watts is very good. Not many people are members of the kilowatt club. So welcome and congratulations. Um, and I will say that uh, that's a very, very high power. I don't know what your body mass is like. but Yeah, if your he body did mention is, it in the if question. It's, if, it's, if it's lean and, and, and light, that's very good watts per kg. So that's really what's going to determine to an extent your speed and your – your finishing uh, position in the in the race to a degree, you know, you would be surprised at how low winning, uh, how low your power output is or your peak power output is in winning a professional race, especially at the pro tour level. Um, because what happens is, is there's a lot of things that come into play, Tony. You have the accumulated fatigue of having to have ridden 150 to 250 kilometers. That takes the sting out of a lot of people's legs. So it dulls a little bit of the high end of the sprinters. And in fact, you could argue that there's no such thing as a sprinter in professional road racing. The real sprinters are in BMX and in track. Mm. The sprinters who race and sprint in road racing are a hybrid animal. They have really good endurance. They're able to get over some of the bumps and they're able to be there for 200K. But by definition, a real sprinter could never survive that. 
So really what you're getting in road racing is you're getting the best sprinters of the really the non-sprinters. And so for, because of that, these guys are putting out typically power outputs of anywhere between about 1,100 watts all the way up to about 1,600, 1,700 watts. Now, that's the snappy one-second peak. Yeah, that's those are big, uh, big powers. Can they sustain that for five seconds or 10 seconds? That's the million-dollar question. And the answer is it depends. It depends on how the sprint plays out. But what typically happens in these sprint finish lines is that it's the person who has the greatest power under the longest uh, time domain for a, 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 a 10 to 12 or 15 or even up to 20 second period. So if you have a, a, a lead out train and you got a, a, your sprinter ready to go and he's at 300 meters to go and he launches it, that sprinter is going to accelerate really, really fast. But then he's going to probably start to slow down as he's fighting the wind. Uh, 300 as, meters, that sounds like a pretty long sprint. Exactly. So he's going to be slowing down as he's starting to come closer to the finish line. And really, if he's up against two or three other people who have you know, been more strategically smart behind him and drafted a little bit more, they may come around him and be going faster than him as he's slowing down. So sometimes what happens is what determines the winner of the sprint is the person who actually slows down the least Leading up to the finish line. Mm. And the best way, though, to win a sprint is to be strategic, to have as many horses burning matches at the front for you as possible, and the timing of when you put out your 10 to 15 second power. And that's really a function of how rested you are and how much natural power capacity you have. And everybody's different in that regard. But to answer fully your question, you're looking at between 12 and 1600 watts as typical power, power outputs that are you know, uh, won by sprinters who are weighing anywhere between 65 and 75 kilos. Oh, so a nice specific answer for you there, Tony. And uh, also, I would like to congratulate you on uh, being a member of the Kilowatt Club as well. And uh, just because the pros are putting out those high numbers, don't feel, don't feel like uh, your numbers are inadequate. That's a great, great performance, especially in, uh, in a PowerWatts context. Agreed, 100%. All right, Paul, so we got one question left. So this one is a little bit longer, so I'll whip through it quickly and then hopefully we can answer. So this question is coming from Lance. He Lance. says, yes, Lance. Uh, I'm not sure which Lance, but uh, <laughs> let's see what the question is and then we could figure out which Lance it might be. Uh, hi, first, thanks for all the PowerWatts programming you guys do. I have found the workouts this season to have great variety. Well done. Well, it's our pleasure, Lance. We like to keep things exciting and interesting in our workouts. Now to my question. Whenever I do long rides, I tend to fall apart after exactly 120 kilometers. It's funny. Before that, I feel good, really good. I can keep up with the group, and I'm solid on the hills, even if it's a hilly ride. But after 120 kilometers, my body just lets go. It's like there's no energy in the legs. Sometimes I just feel a general emptiness in my body. I don't quite know how else to describe it. I really don't think I'm riding too hard earlier in the ride, but I'm not sure because I don't have a power meter. And I also always make sure that I drink and eat a lot during the ride, but maybe it's not enough. But I got to say, I don't really get hungry or thirsty while I ride. Because of all this, I'm a little nervous to sign up for a 100-mile Grand Fondo ride, but I do want to com complete one one day to check it off my bucket list. Do you have any training tips or nutrition tips 
as I start to transition to riding outside now that the snow has melted. Thanks a bunch. Hmm. Okay, Lance. Uh, Mark, are you sure that's not really a question coming from you and you're just pretending that's an answer? <laughs> you want some free coaching or something, Mark? Yeah. <laughs> or, or have you just been riding with your Uncle Nick? Yeah, well, keeping up with Uncle Nick is pretty tough these days, you know. So uh, I, I will definitely, whatever advice you give our friend Lance here, I will be listening in very closely. Okay, well, Lance, um, the first thing is, is uh, you know, most importantly, if there's any way that you can get yourself a power meter, uh, that would be the best way to really figure out whether you're um, as correct with your pacing as you think you might be. Because you would be surprised, especially in the group environment, we always tend to overdo it and work in a harder level than we think we're doing. And a power meter can sort of help solve that riddle a little bit because we always have adrenaline and we always have the sensation of euphoria a little bit. We're always more motivated when around other people. So a power meter can help to demystify that and say, wow. Uh, I'm going 280 watts and I only felt like I was going 200, you know, so that'll help. And that may help to sort of pace you a little bit better uh, and help you understand that, you know, you can start a little bit lower and try and see if you can sustain your effort so that you don't get that 120 kilometer uh, uh, bonk from the sounds of it. Um, as far as, um, you know, consuming uh, enough food, uh, I, like I, I mentioned in the other answer earlier, I think that, you know, if, if, you're burning, uh, let's say, an average of 500 kilocalories an hour on the bike, um, depending on your power output and, and, and what your weight is. You want to try and have a rule of thinking about maybe trying to replenish at least 50% of that. So if you're burning 500 kilocalories an hour, you want to try and make sure that you have an energy bar and a couple of gels in your pocket if you go for a three-hour ride because you want to put back you know, 750 kilocalories because you've ridden three hours. That's a general rule I use with the athletes in training, especially if they find that they're getting uh, energy fluctuations. Uh, so I would try that and see. And, and then what happens after that is you want to test your body to see what the limits of your absorption capacity is so that you can deliver the most fuel to your system with the least amount of gastric distress. And some for some people, that's why I use 250. For some people, it's at 250. For some people, that's 350. And other people, it's the, the whole 500 they can consume. So try and play with that a little bit and see if it has an impact on your performance at 120 kilometers. And uh, unless you're, you're like your Uncle Nick. And uh, Uncle Nick, he just doesn't eat or drink at all because he <laughs> wants to keep his uh, supermodel figure. <laughs> but for the rest of us mortals, you know, you want to try and play with that a little bit to see if um, – you know, if you can have more sustainable energy. Does would that make suggest, sense? Somewhat? Yeah, would, but would you suggest that Lance try to get most of that as liquid calories, like putting a powder in his water bottle, or should he get that as solid food calories, or is that does that depend? It's different for each person. What do you think? I think it's experimentation, but I do think that it always is a little bit easier to absorb liquid than, than solid. But, you know, gels are not so – they're sort of half liquid, half solid. They're mostly liquid. Uh, and the other thing too is some people just like the feeling of chewing and eating a piece of food or a rice cake or a, an energy bar. That's why I say, you know, like if you, if you have a gel or two, that's considered like a liquid – if you um, have a, a, a bottle with some, some, some electrolyte slash glucose solution in it, that's also considered a calorie there that you can take in and also an energy bar. So you have the 
the capacity to alternate between those things. And that will also get away from the, oh, I'm sick of having the orange flavored Gatorade or sick of having the caffeine loaded, uh, you know, gel pack. You yeah, know? double espresso gel. <laughs> exactly. But speaking of caffeine, that may be uh, a strategy that you can employ, Lance, to um, uh, sort of uh, spare a little bit of glycogen because it sounds like if you're bonking a little bit that you're running out of your glycogen stores a little bit and caffeine can help to increase. It has a lipolytic effect. It increases your uh, your your ability to burn fat. And so if you uh, have an, a, a greater ability to burn fat earlier in your, in your ride, you're going to spare what we call liver and muscle glycogen stores. And if you spare those liver and muscle glycogen stores, you'll be able to continue at the same pace for longer. So that might be a good strategy for you to employ. And uh, let's say Lance, he gets that 120 kilometer mark. And despite all the good suggestions that you've given him thus far, let's say he does fall apart and get that emptiness uh, in his body. What would you suggest that he do at that point to try to pull himself back together and get that extra 30 or 40 K in to get to that hundred mile mark? Well, I mean, I've never seen anybody not adapt to being able to extend their rides. So I'm sure it's something to do with his pacing or his nutrition. But if that does continue to happen, what I would try to do is maybe um, give him, give him a break at 60, 70, 80 kilometers into the ride and maybe stop, have something to eat, stretch out a little bit and try and see if the same thing happens at 120K. I'm curious to see that because it may only happen at 130 or 140. And it could be that he just needs to expand his envelope of, of putting out power for more than two or three hours. Uh, and if he gives himself a break, he'll be able to do that a little bit more easily, you know. The other thing he might want to do is pay attention to the gearing he's using. Maybe he's over-muscling it with his gearing. So he might want to go to a slightly lighter gear so that he's not always uh, undergoing what we call time under load. So, there, you know, his cadence is low, so his muscles are perpetually contracting. So he doesn't get that recovery mechanism or the muscle pump action that's going to help to kind of continue the blood flow a little bit through his legs. So those are all strategies he can do. Uh, he can also try and maybe um, choose a group that's not going to push him so hard. So <laughs> yeah, so maybe he's going out with too strong of a group. That's a Well, I'm sure he's riding with Uncle Nick. That's probably <laughs> the problem. <laughs> well, uh, so Lance, that sounds like a couple strategies that you can try. So it's not quite time yet uh, here in our uh, neck of the woods up in uh, in uh, in Montreal, whereabout we live, to start doing those 120K rides, but they'll be right around the corner. So once you get a chance to do 120K or a little bit more, please do let us know how it goes. And if you'd like uh, any further or more specific advice, don't hesitate on getting back in touch with us. Fantastic. All right, Paul. So that's all the questions we had lined up uh, for today. So thank you very much for your answers. Thanks, guys. Until the next time, Mark. Yeah, and uh, next time uh, for you listeners, we're going to try something a little different. So next time we're going to add a video component to it, and uh, Paul is going to show you guys some power files of different types of riders. So hopefully uh, I'll be able to get the video working. It took us a good half an hour just to get the audio working tonight, but uh, we will try our best, and next time you will be able to see us in person during the podcast. So thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks. Bye-bye.